This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This is a recording of Aristotle's Poetics, translated by Ingram Bywater with a preface by Gilbert Murray and read to you by Bob Foster. Chapter 22 The perfection of diction is for it to be at once clear and not mean. The clearest, indeed, is that made up of the ordinary words for things, but it is mean, as is shown by the poetry of Cleophon and Sthenelus. On the other hand, the diction becomes distinguished and non-prosaic by the use of unfamiliar terms, that is, strange words, metaphors, lengthened forms, and everything that deviates from the ordinary modes of speech. But a whole statement in such terms will be either a riddle or a barbarism, a riddle if made up of metaphors, a barbarism if made up of strange words. The very nature, indeed, of a riddle is this, to describe a fact in an impossible combination of words, which cannot be done with the real names for things, but can be with their metaphorical substitutes. For example, I saw a man glue brass on another with fire, and the like. The corresponding use of strange words results in a barbarism. A certain admixture, accordingly, of unfamiliar terms is necessary. These, the strange word, the metaphor, the ornamental equivalent, etc., will save the language from seeming mean and prosaic, while the ordinary words in it will secure the requisite clearness. What helps most, however, to render the diction at once clear and non-prosaic is the use of the lengthened, curtailed, and altered forms of words. Their deviation from the ordinary words will, by making the language unlike that in general use, give it a non-prosaic appearance, and their having much in common with the words in general use will give it the quality of clearness. It is not right, then, to condemn these words of speech and ridicule the poet for using them, as some have done. For example, the elder Euclid, who said it was easy to make poetry if one were to be allowed to lengthen the words in the statement itself as much as one likes, a procedure he caricatured by reading Epixarathon, Aidan, Maratonade, Badi, Gonta, and Ukhan, Gemerminos, Tan, Ekanu, Eli, Boron, as verses. A too apparent use of these licenses has certainly a ludicrous effect, but they are not alone in that. The rule of moderation applies to all the constituents of the poetic vocabulary, even with metaphors, strange words, and the rest. The effect will be the same if one uses them improperly and with a view to provoking laughter. The proper use of them is a very different thing. To realize the difference, one should take an epic verse and see how it reads when the normal words are introduced. The same should be done, too, with the strange word, the metaphor, and the rest. For one has only to put the ordinary words in their place to see the truth of what we are saying. The same iambic, for instance, is found in Aeschylus and Euripides, and as it stands in the former, it is a poor line whereas Euripides, by the change of a single word, the substitution of a strange for what is by usage the ordinary word, has made it seem a fine one. Aeschylus, having said in his Philoctetes, 
Fagidena he monsarkas hestiae podos. Euripides has merely altered the hestiae here into thoniatiae, or suppose nun de menhion holy ghost to kai otidanos kai aikos, to be altered by the substitution of the ordinary words into nun de minion micros ti kai hastinikos kai haidos, or the line diphron hykelion katatias olingen te trapixen into diphron maxtiron katateis micron to trapixen or Herionis busan into Herionis krauxan add to this that Erephrades used to ridicule the tragedians for introducing expressions unknown in the language of common life doyetan hapo for apodomaton septen hegodetinin achilios peri for peri achilios and the like the mere fact of their not being in ordinary speech gives the diction a non-prosaic character. But Erephrades was unaware of that. It is a great thing indeed to make a proper use of these poetical forms, as also of compounds and strange words. But the greatest thing by far is to be a master of metaphor. It is the one thing that cannot be learned from others. And it is also a sign of genius, since a good metaphor implies an intuitive perception of the similarity in dissimilars. Of the kinds of words we have enumerated, it, m it may be observed that compounds are most in place in the dithyram, strange words in heroic, and metaphors in iambic poetry. Heroic poetry, indeed, may avail itself of them all, but in iambic verse which models itself as far as possible on the spoken language, only those kinds of words are in place which are allowable also in an oration, that is, the ordinary word, the metaphor, and the ornamental equivalent. Let this then suffice as an account of tragedy, the art imitating by means of action on the stage. Chapter 23 as for the poetry which merely narrates or imitates by means of versified language without action, it is evident that it has several points in common with tragedy. 1. The construction of its stories should clearly be like that in a drama. They should be based on a single action, one that is a complete whole in itself, with a beginning, middle, and end, so as to enable the work to produce its own proper pleasure with all the organic unity of a living creature. Nor should one suppose that there is anything like them in our usual histories. A history has to deal not with one action, but with one period and, period and all that happened in that to one or more persons, however disconnected the several e events may have been. Just as two events may take place at the same time, for example the sea fight off Salamis and the battle with the Carthaginians in Sicily, without converging to the same end, so two of two consecutive events, one may sometimes come after the other, with no one end as their common issue. Nevertheless, most of our epic poets, one may say, ignore the distinction. Herein, then, to repeat 
what we have said before, we have a further proof of Homer's marvellous superiority to the rest. He did not attempt to deal even with the Trojan War in its entirety, though it was a whole with a definite beginning and end, through a feeling apparently that it was too long a story to be taken in one view, or if not that, too complicated from the variety of incident in it. As it is, he has singled out one section of the whole. Many of the other incidents, however, he brings in as episodes, using the catalogue of the ships, for instance, and other episodes to relieve the uniformity of his narrative. As for the other epic poets, they treat of one man, or one period, or else of an action which, although one, has a multiplicity of parts in it. This last is what the authors of the Cypria and Little Iliad have done, and the result is that whereas the Iliad or Odyssey supplies materials for only one, or at most two tragedies, the Cypria does that for several, and the Little Iliad for more than eight. For an adjudgment of arms, a Philoctetes, a Neoptolemus, a Eurypylus, a Ulysses as beggar, a Laconian women, a fall of Ilium, and a departure of the fleet, as also a Sinon and women of Troy. Chapter 24 2. Besides this, epic poetry must divide into the same species as tragedy. It must be either simple or complex, a story of character or one of suffering. Its parts, too, with the exception of song and spectacle, must be the same, as it requires peripeties, discoveries, and scenes of suffering just like tragedy. Lastly, the thought and diction in it must be good in their way. All these elements appear in Homer first, and he has made due use of them. His two poems are each examples of construction, the Iliad simple and a story of suffering the Odyssey complex, there is discovery throughout it, and a story of character. And they are more than this, since in diction and thought, too, they surpass all other poems. There is, however, a difference in the epic as compared with tragedy, one in its length and two in its meter. One, as to its length, the limit already suggested will suffice. It must be possible for the beginning and end of the work to be taken in one view, a condition which will be fulfilled of the poem be, if the poem be shorter than the old epics and about as long as the series of tragedies offered for one hearing. For the extension of its length, epic poetry has a special advantage, of which it makes large use. In a play, one cannot represent an action with a number of parts going on simultaneously. One is limited to the part on the stage and connected with the actors. Whereas is epic poetry, the narrative form makes it uh, possible for one to describe a number of simultaneous incidents, and these, if germane to the subject, increase the body of the poem. This, then, is a gain to the epic, tending to give it grandeur and also variety of interest and room for episodes of diverse kinds. Uniformity of incident by the satiety it soon creates is apt to ruin tragedies on the stage. 2. As for its meter, the heroic has been assigned it from experience, 
were any one to attempt the narrative poem in some one or in several of the other meters, the incongruity of the thing would be apparent. The heroic, in fact, is the gravest and weightiest of meters, which is what makes it more tolerant than the rest of strange words and metaphors that also, being a point in which the narrative form of poetry goes beyond all others. The iambic and trochaic, on the other hand, are meters of movement, the one representing that of life and action, the other that of the dance. Still more unnatural would it appear uh, if one were to write an epic in a medley of meters, as Caramon did. Hence it is that no one has ever written a long story in any but heroic verse. Nature herself, as we have said, teaches us to select the meter appropriate to such a story. Homer, admirable as he is in every other respect, is especially so in this, that he alone among epic poets is not unaware of the part to be played by the poet himself on the poem. The poet should say very little in propria persona, as he is no imitator when doing that, whereas the other poets are perpetually coming forward in person, and say but little, and that only here and there, as imitators. Homer, after a brief preface, brings in forthwith a man, a woman, or some other character, no one of them characterless, but each with distinctive characteristics. The marvelous is, certain required, is certainly required in tragedy. The epic, however, affords more opening for the improbable, the chief factor in the marvelous, because in it the agents are not visibly before one. The scene of the pursuit of Hector would be ridiculous on the stage, the Greeks halting instead of pursuing him, and Achilles shaking his head to stop them. But in the poem the absurdity is overlooked. The marvelous, however, is a cause of pleasure, as is shown by the fact that we all tell a story with additions in the belief that we are doing our hearers a pleasure. Homer, more than any other, has taught the rest of us the art of framing lies in the right way. I mean the use of paralogism. Whenever, if A is or happens, a consequent B is or happens, men's notion is that if the B is, the A also is, but that is a false conclusion. Accordingly, if A is untrue, but there is something else, B that on the assumption of its truth follows as its consequent, the right thing then is to add on the B. Just because we know the truth of the consequent, we are in our own minds led on to the erroneous inference of the truth of the antecedent. Here is an instance from the Bath story in the Odyssey. A likely impossibility is always preferable to an unconvincing possibility. The story should never be made up of improbable incidents. There should be nothing of the sort in it. If, however, such incidents are unavoidable, they should be outside the peace, like the hero's ignorance in Oedipus of the circumstances of Lamb's death, not within it, like the report of the Pythian games in Electra, or the man's having come to Mysia from Tegea without uttering a word on the way in the Mysians so that it is ridiculous to say that one's plot would have been spoilt without them, since it is fundamentally wrong to make up such plots. 
If the poet has taken such a plot, however, and one sees that he might have put it in a more probable form, he is guilty of absurdity as well as a fault of art. Even in the Odyssey, the improbabilities in the setting ashore of Ulysses would be clearly intolerable in the hands of an inferior poet. As it is, the poet conceals them, his other excellences veiling their absurdity. Elaborate diction, however, is required only in places where there is no action, and no character or thought to be revealed. Where there is character or thought, on the other hand, an over-ornate diction tends to obscure them. 